With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Good boys and girls, two-footed podcast on Wednesday, the 20th of April, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from. For example, if you're a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub or All 4, or an Irish expat and you want RT Player, or you want GAA Go, a Liberty Shield VPN will get you where you want to be and keep your data safe from the ne'er-do-wells and the miscreants who lurk on the old interwebs. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. Check out libertyshield.com. Use the code EPL25, that's EPL25, at checkout to get 25% off either the hardware package, which is a router that's posted out to you, or the software package, which you can instantly download to your devices and get using straight away. LibertyShield.com, EPL25. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 and RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we had one game in the Premier League last night and it did not turn out well for the men from Manchester. Liverpool 4, Manchester United 0. This was an embarrassment for Manchester United. This was a performance that within 15 minutes had Gary Neville wishing he could be anywhere else, had him slating the team that he loves, had Jamie Carragher making some very questionable noises, had Martin Tyler begrudgingly admitting that Liverpool were on a completely different planet. The Reds went one up through Luis Diaz on five minutes. A glorious sweeping move. Salah to Henderson to Mane. Turn, ball over the top. Salah onto it. Trent Alexander-Arnold matching him stride for stride. Salah gets there first. Quips it across the box. And Luis Diaz arrived to put it home. Liverpool one up within five minutes. If you haven't watched, if you don't watch Mark Goldbridge, you're missing out. (laughs) You really are missing out. Go and watch Goldbridge's best bits from that game last night. It's about 12 minutes long. 
my God, it is comical stuff. Hearing him go, pigeons, 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 is just one of the funniest things I've ever heard. And all I can do all day is just think of pigeons. I don't have any, there's no pigeons around. Mark Goldbridge is just living rent-free in my head at the moment. The Reds were two up on 22 minutes. Again, it's just sensational football. There's a cross-field ball by Thiago to Salah to Trent, goes back, pops into Luis, uh, pops to Joel Matip. He fires it into Luis Diaz. Diaz fires it back out to him. Matip cushions the next pass into the feet of Mane. And Mane plays an absolutely ridiculous ball, clips it up over the shoulder, over the defender, Perfect for Salah, one touch, and then it's away into the net, 2-0. And Liverpool were rampant. United were all over the place. United had started with a back three. A rather bizarre decision from Ralph Ranyek to select Phil Jones. Lindelof, Phil Jones, and Harry Maguire. Pre-game, Goldbridge said they looked like the cast of a carry-on film. During the game, he said that they were statues and talked about pigeons doing their business on them. Uh, he described a toilet in the middle of the United defence. He was he was losing the run of himself. He didn't really hold it together, but it, it's great stuff. Go and watch that video. For the rest of the first half, it was just a Thiago show. He was just ridiculous. He was playing a different sport to everybody else. He was doing whatever he wanted. He had the entire place dancing to the beat of his drum. It was a joy, genuinely a joy to watch. Genuinely one of the best midfield performances you'll ever see by a Liverpool player. And Sadio Mane turned in one of the best all-round number nine performances as well. He was brilliant from minute one. Just different class. Directly involved in three of the goals indirectly involved in the fourth sensational he made a three on 68 united had had a period of pressure where they managed their first shot on target and actually created a half decent chance that allison saved it was ruled offside but it turned out it was actually onside and would have counted allison save from him and then from alanga he won't get credit for those saves but they were big saves but andy robertson decided enough was enough took the ball off United, drove forward, fed Diaz on the left. He took his time, made the right decision, played the perfect pass for Salah. Salah didn't try, or to Mane, sorry. Mane didn't try to put anything extra on the ball, just redirected it with the existing power and put it in the bottom corner from about 15 yards. And then Salah wrapped it up on 85. Diogo Jota had come off the bench. Again, it's Andy Robertson stealing the ball off Hannibal Mejbri. Jota picks it up, plays the perfect pass, Salah in behind the defence, Maguire all at sea, and it's 4-0. And 4-0 flattered United. 4-0 almost makes it seem like it was respectable, just a bit of a beating. This was a whooping. This was more comprehensive than what Liverpool did to them at Old Trafford when they put five past them. That is 9-0 for Liverpool against United this season. By far the biggest aggregate score there's ever been.
between these two sides in the history of this incredible rivalry. It's never been a bigger gulf. <laughs> Even in the 70s and the 80s, when United weren't particularly good, they always gave Liverpool a game. In the 90s and 2000s, when Liverpool weren't good, they always gave United a game. This season, they haven't given Liverpool a game at all. Not even slightly. This is the worst United team since the 70s. And maybe the most cowardly in the history of the club. So, on about 35 minutes, it had become clear that United had sort of given up. And their players were walking. And I do mean walking. Gary Neville commented on it. He said they're out there and they're walking. A couple of them, maybe they're ambling at best. But for most of them, it's just a jaunt. And I thought, he's exactly spot on. They're, they're walking around. There's no pressure on Liverpool's defence when they have the ball. Liverpool's midfield, Thiago in particular, is just walking through them. And I felt sorry for De Gea and to an extent the back three because they were getting no help at all. Paul Pogba went off after 10 minutes with a rather suspect calf injury. Jesse Lingard came on. I think he completed four passes. No, is it two passes? It might have been two. It was either two or four passes in the remaining 35 minutes while playing in central midfield. In the entire game, United starting central midfielders, United central midfielders, not the starting ones, the entire central midfielders from Manchester United completed 50 passes. Pogba, Matic and Lingard. Now, I'm not sure if this includes Bruno. It may, it may well include Bruno. They completed 50 passes. Alison Becker, a goalkeeper, completed 51. He was able to just ping it through the lines as and when he felt like it. There was no pressure on the ball. There was no shape, no structure. Maguire just stuck his head in the sand, looked completely lost. Phil Jones is the, is the only one I will exempt from any criticism for that game. Now, he was, he was terrible. He was terrible. But... Phil Jones, prior to last night, had played three Premier League games in three years and 11 games, no, I'm sorry, 10 games total in three years, some of which were sub-appearances, probably most of which were sub-appearances. He didn't play at all last season. He's now played three games this season and he was thrown in at Anfield against killers, against Salah and Mane and Diaz. He was thrown into that. Ralph Ranić. Ralph Ranić actually should be sacked after what we witnessed from his team last night. I know he's going in a matter of weeks. But genuinely, I wouldn't even let him see out the rest of the season after what he served up last night. 
And it, you can blame the players, you can blame the manager, whoever you want. They're all at fault. They should all be ashamed of themselves. But as I've said before, and Gary Neville said it last night, the club are broken from the top down. This is not a problem from the bottom up. This is a problem from the top down. And today, Andy Mitten, who's very good for United, has come out with an exclusive saying that two of their top scouts, Jim Lawler and Marcel Boot, are leaving. Now, Jim Lawler has been at United since 2005. He's been their chief scout since 2014. Boot came in as a coach under Van Hal and was then appointed head of global scouting. But the key, wor- key words or the key sentence in this entire article about how United are planning changes behind the scenes are as follows. John Murtaugh has full control of the football operations and has driven some of the changes as he seeks to help turn United around. John Murtaugh, a guy who has absolutely no business being the football director of Manchester United. He was at Everton for years, mired in mediocrity, came to United with Moyes, somehow survived the culling of Moyes, became head of football development in 2016, I'm not necessarily sure he did a particularly good job at that. He was put in charge of the recruitment of the women's team in 2018. And then was then involved in the overhaul of United's academy and recruitment department. All of which have been failures. And this is the man in charge of football. Darren Fletcher, technical director. He was sat on the bench last night. What is your technical director doing sat on the bench? What does he actually do with the club? Then you've got Matt Judge, director of football negotiations. These are the men that went and bought... Harry Maguire for 80 million, Juan Basaka for 50. These are the men responsible for bringing in Paul Pogba for 89 million. We may never see Paul Pogba in a Manchester United shirt ever again. And if his last act is skulking off at Anfield, leaving his team high and dry after 10 minutes, well, then, you know, it's kind of fitting. It's kind of fitting from what we've seen from him the rest of the time. United were a disgrace last night. Liverpool were exceptional. Liverpool go top of the league, two points clear of City. City do have a game in hand. That game in hand is tonight. They will play Brighton. Liverpool also have a nine-goal advantage in the goal difference column. They have scored 11 goals more but conceded two more Uh, for Liverpool to play the way they do and only have conceded 22 goals. It's pretty special, you know, Um, we do have a multitude of games tonight though. 
So we get Everton versus Leicester at quarter to eight. That one is a rescheduled match from match day 18. Now, if I'm not mistaken, match day 18 is pre-Christmas. Well, well before Christmas. Match day 18 was the week before Christmas. The week before Christmas. So that game is only getting rescheduled now. Uh, we also have Chelsea versus Arsenal from match day 25. That one should be a really good game. We get Crystal Palace against Newcastle and City versus Brighton. So let's start with City-Brighton. Obviously, City top of the table as well, second in the table now, but they have been top of the table for an extended period to the favourites to win the league this season. They come into this game, though, having won just three of their last five in the Premier League. And that is a slight concern for them. Now, Admittedly, one of those draws against Liverpool, but the draw against Palace. No, it wasn't Palace. It was Palace. The draw against Palace wasn't great. And this season, they've struggled against Palace and against Southampton. And Brighton have similarities in how they play and the type of defensive approaches they take to those two teams. Now, they're more conservative than Southampton. But in a similar way to Palace, they try and limit opponents to low percentage shots. And you just wonder if this is a game where Brighton can pull something off. They've just beaten Arsenal and Spurs away from home, two teams that at the time were top four teams. So I wouldn't rule anything out. I expect City to win the game. But I wouldn't rule anything out. Brighton have no Eve Basuma, so that's a big, big blow. But Mwepu's in great form. They've got Casado. They should be in good enough shape in midfield. Alzati should be back. Shane Duffy's out, not really a blow. Jakob Motor's out for the season, and that's a massive blow for him and for the team because he's been playing really well. City, no Cole Palmer, no Benjamin Mendy. Uh, Kyle Walker is a major doubt for tonight. And Gabriel Jesus, um, I can only assume it's because he, he's had to go see a doctor because his face is always crumpled up in a cry. Like he has perma cry just welded to his face. Um, I can only assume that's why he's a bit of a doubt, but I expect him to play and be fine. Uh, City should win the game. City should win the game. But just in the little bit of form that Brighton are in, it wouldn't be the biggest surprise in the world if they could give City a few problems. Everton-Leicester, I expect Leicester to win this game. Now, they'll have no Bubakari Samari. Oh, maybe they will. He could be back. Jamie Vardy is almost certainly out. Danny Ward is out. Ryan Bertrand is out. And Wilf Ndidi is done for the season. 
Everton, no Nathan Patterson, no Tom Davies, no Andros Townsend. Everton come into the game having beaten Manchester United last week. They've won two of their last five. They're still very much tied up in the relegation battle. Fourth from bottom, three games, sorry, three points clear of Burnley. Game in hand, which is this game tonight. I expect Leicester to win, but they're so they're so inconsistent themselves. Two wins and a draw from their last five, beaten by Newcastle at the weekend in pretty disappointing fashion. You would hope Rodgers will get a response out of his team. They play Everton now twice in a couple of weeks. And if they lose tonight, it will give Everton massive, absolutely massive momentum and, and, and belief in themselves when they play again on the 8th of May. So Rodgers needs to get a response from his team. He really does. Newcastle Palace, mid-table battle. Newcastle obviously have done exceptionally well since the turn of the year. These two teams have the same number of points. Uh, Palace have a much superior goal difference and they've played a game less. They're coming off, obviously, a heartbreaking defeat in the FA Cup semi-final at the weekend where they matched Chelsea for 65, went behind and just couldn't get their way back into it and ended up losing 2-0. The Toon had that confidence-building win over um, Leicester. That's back-to-back wins for them, having beaten Wolves the previous week. Palace will be without Luka Milivojevic and Nathan Ferguson. Luka Milivojevic got injured in the six minutes he was on the pitch in the FA Cup semi-final. Nathan Ferguson is just having an absolute nightmare time of it. For the tune, still no Trippier, no Wilson. Uh, Mankio could be back, though. Isaac Hayden is still out. He's not registered, though, so he can't play anyway. Uh, Jamal Lewis is not registered and also injured. And Ryan Frazier is out. So the tune will have to mix and match as they have been. They do have the benefit of now being able to play Bruno Gomerich more regularly. Um, he's a, a different class of footballer to anything else they have. Given that this game is in Newcastle, I think I'll go draw for this one. I'll go City win. I think they'll win 3-1. I'll go 1-1 in the Newcastle Palace game. I'll go 2-1 Leicester, though I don't really have much faith in that. But the big game tonight, obviously, is Chelsea versus Arsenal. Chelsea a third. Arsenal, without playing, actually went up a position in the league last night. So they're up to fifth. Um, I don't really know what to make of this game. Chelsea have won four of five. The defeat was the hammering by Brentford. They've got nothing to play for in the league other than finishing third. The FA Cup final will be their focus. My assumption is that from here on, the players will be playing for their place in that final. So I'm expecting to see good things from Chelsea. Arsenal have lost three in a row, four of five. Going into tonight's game, uh, Lacazette is sick. Tomiyasu's still out, Tierney's done for the season, and Thomas Partey 
is also done most likely for the season. So I'm expecting Chelsea to win the game. Now, they don't have Kovacic. That's a big blow. Barkley's out. He's not a loss. Chilwell's out. He's been out for a while. And hudson Doy has a bit of an Achilles injury. I'm expecting Chelsea to win this game. They're at home. They're the better team. They're in better form. They've just got better players and a much better manager. I'm expecting Chelsea to win. I'm going to go 3-0 to Chelsea. I think this is the type of game you can start Lukaku in, and he will do well because the Arsenal defence is soft. So there are your games with tonight. Four of them. Everton, Leicester, Chelsea, Arsenal, Newcastle, Palace, City, Brighton. The City, Brighton is an 8pm kickoff. The others are a quarter to eight. I think... I think this will be the end of Arsenal's top four hopes if they lose this game tonight. Because when you look at the league table, the three behind Spurs, Spurs have a much better goal difference. They lose tonight, that's the same number of games played. Arsenal have United at home at the weekend. I'm expecting a big reaction from United after tonight. Now, it may well be a draw, but I'm expecting a reaction. I think West Ham beat them at the city of at the, the London Stadium. They'll go to Leeds and win. So that's their next three after this one. You look at Spurs. Spurs have Brentford away. They should win that one. Then they get Leicester at home. They should win that one. Then they go to Liverpool. I expect them to lose that one. But I think by the time these sides play each other. I think the gap is going to be four or five points. In which case, it won't matter if Arsenal win the game. I don't expect them to go and win, but I could see a draw. And then Spurs wrap it up with Tottenham and then Norwich. Whereas Arsenal, yes, they should beat Newcastle and they should beat Everton, but going to Newcastle, that could be tough enough. The final home game of the season, St. James is right up for it. I think Arsenal are going to miss out. I've been saying it all season. I still think they'll finish sixth. I don't think they'll even get fifth. I think United will jump them because they've got a more favourable run-in once they get past Arsenal and then Chelsea. They get Brentford on the beach, Brighton on the beach, Palace probably on the beach. Expect them to win their last three and expect them to nip Arsenal to fifth. I think Arsenal gets sixth. And Wolves are West Ham, then seventh and eighth. Chelsea will be third, Tottenham fourth. And then it's a question of who finishes first and second. There's a lot still to go. Some teams have five games left, like United. Some have eight games left, like Chelsea. So still plenty of football to be played. And there's still a lot to play for for a number of teams, like Liverpool and City, obviously. Chelsea have nothing really to play for in the league. Tottenham, Arsenal, United and West Ham, I'd say, are the teams with a chance of top four. I think West Ham have probably blown theirs, though. I don't think Wolves have anything to play for now. Leicester, Brighton, Brentford, Southampton, Palace, Newcastle. It's just jockeying for top half now is all it is for them. Uh, nothing to play for for Villa. 
I think Leeds, it's just a matter of clocking up enough points to be certain of staying up, but they should be fine. Everton, Burnley, Watford still playing to stay in the division. Norwich to an extent as well. Norwich and Watford, I think we can wave goodbye to. I think it is Everton and Burnley. And remember, Burnley play tomorrow night against Southampton. So if Everton lose tonight and Burnley win tomorrow night, Burnley will be out of the bottom three. Now, they will have played a game more, but Everton have the harder run in. And Everton play Liverpool at the weekend, so things don't look good for them. Go take a break. When we come back, we're going to welcome Fulham back to the Premier League. See you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, while there was a game going on in the Premier League last night, there was also a game going on in the Championship, and Fulham beat Preston by three goals to nil. They had it wrapped up by half-time. Mitrovic on nine minutes, Fabio Carvalho on 34 minutes, and Mitrovic again on 41 minutes. That gives him 40 goals for the season. 40 goals for the season, league only. In 39 games that he's played, absolutely sensational. Fulham promoted, almost certain of coming up as champions. They are six points clear. They've got four games left. Their four games are tough. Bournemouth are second. Bournemouth's maximum points total this season is 92. Fulham have 86. Fulham have a vastly superior goal difference. They're plus 61. 98 goals scored, which is incredible. Uh, Bournemouth is, pl- is plus 30. So two more wins will guarantee Fulham top spot. However, if they win this weekend, they will go to 89 and they will guarantee themselves the title because they play Bournemouth. And while it wouldn't necessarily be given to them at that point because you know Bournemouth might score 40 goals in the last couple of games they will for all intents and purposes become the champions of the championship if they defeat Bournemouth this weekend that's Saturday the 23rd at 3 p.m should be a really good game Bournemouth obviously second in the division have had a very good season themselves but Fulham have just been a different class now after that, they play Forest on on the Tuesday at home. Again, it's a tough game, but at home they should win. Then they play Luton. Again, it's a tough game at home. And then their final game is away to Sheffield United. So they've actually got a very difficult run-in. But with the form they've been in, you'd expect them to pick up the points they need to guarantee themselves being crowned champions of the championship. They'll come back into the Premier League having been one of the yo-yo teams. Obviously, themselves and Norwich simply not allowed to be in the same division at the same time. That must be a contractual thing. As one comes up, the other one goes down. Twice in recent years, Fulham have come up, signed a bunch of players, and gone straight back down. 
the problem they have had isn't so much the players they've signed because they've signed a number of good players. The problem has been how late they've left it to sign players. Last season, for example, they didn't sign most of the players until the second second and third week of August. They were very, very late getting going in the transfer market, and that was disappointing. So we look at the 18-19 season. They came up under Yukanovic. He got sacked in the November. Then they bring in Ranieri. They sack him in the February, and then they bring in Scott Parker. That year, they signed 5, 10, 13 players on permanent transfers and six on loan. Unsurprisingly, they finished 19th and went down. In 2021, they came up under Scott Parker, gave him the entire season. They brought in five permanent transfers and seven on loan. Now, they signed good players. Anthony Robinson, good player. Harrison Reed, good player. Kenny Tete, good player. Tosin, excellent. Uh, Terence Conglo, he'd been all right before the knee injury kind of killed his, his momentum. He's still there, though. Uh, they brought in Lamina on loan. He was good for them. They brought in Ariola. He was good for them. Ola Aina was good. Luckman was good. Yuki Manderson was excellent. Loftus-Cheek was probably the only one of the loans that didn't work. Uh, they also brought in Josh Madge in the January, and he did okay. He did okay. But they left it far too late. Like, they made these signs. I was wrong about the dates because, obviously, the season started late in 21 uh, after COVID. So they signed. It was September and October they signed players. They didn't do anything really in August. They brought in Anthony Robinson and they got Lamina on loan. Then they bring in Ariola, Aina, and Kenny Tete. And then into October, it's Luckman. Anderson, Loftus-Cheek, Tolson, and Terence Conglow. The season had already started before they started signing these players. They just left it far too late, and then Parker was having to try and slot them in. Now, he deserves some of the the blame here as well, because he was far too late to actually change the team. And he also was the reason Matt O'Reilly left uh, and ended up going to MK Dons. Matt O'Reilly, who would probably be their best midfielder right now, Parker wouldn't play him because he signed Harry Arthur, who is his brother-in-law. Just bizarre. So if Fulham can learn one lesson from their last two trips to the Premier League, it has to be do not leave it too long before you start buying players. You've got to make early moves in the transfer market. You've got to be aggressive in the market. Go and get the players you want early, June, early July. Have them in place by mid-July. Let Marco Silva, who's done a brilliant job since taking over, work with them for that month or so before the season starts. They're going to need to do quite a bit. So the two keepers are Marek Rodic, who's not a Premier League calibre keeper, and Gasaniga who obviously people will know mostly from his time at Spurs. Uh, I think he was he at Southampton before that as well. He was. 
He was actually at Southampton for five years. He was at Spurs for four years. Um, he's he's okay. He's not a Premier League caliber keeper. So you've got to go and get a goalkeeper. You've got Kenny Tete at right back. You've brought in Nico Williams at right back as well. I expect them to make that deal permanent. I think that's their right back. I think that's fine. Left back, you've got Anthony Robinson, who's very good. You've got Joe Bryan, who's a good championship player, but struggles in the Premier League. But you're all right once you've got Anthony Robinson. You've got Tosin. You've got to go and find a good partner for him. Hector, Ream, Alfie Mawson. We know these players are not Premier League caliber. We've seen it. We've done it. They're not Premier League caliber. You've got to go and buy a good partner for Tosin and then a good backup as well. So you need to make the Nico Williams deal permanent, find a goalkeeper, and find two centre-backs. In midfield, Harrison Reed is, is good enough. Nathaniel Chalaba is good enough. John Michel Seri is good enough. Tom Kearney, I think, is more championship player. Josh Onema, I think, is a good player. Uh, and he's someone that, if he can stay fit, could play a part for them. But I still think you'd want to add at least one in there. Now, you're losing Fabio Carvalho. You're going to have to replace him. Harry Wilson has shown he can play in the Premier League. Mitrovic is going to be the big, the big question mark. Because in the Championship, he has been phenomenal. In the Premier League, he has struggled. So you look at him in the Premier League with Newcastle. He got the first season, he gets 9-34. and 34. He goes down to the Championship, doesn't go well. Comes back up, none of it's going well. He goes to Fulham in the Championship, and he scores 12 goals in 17 games across the back half of the season. Is key to getting them up. First season up, he scores 11-37. and 37. It's respectable, but it's not quite good enough. They go down. He gets 26-40. and 40. He's on an absolute tear. They come up, he gets three goals. Three goals last season, just not good enough. This season, he's been ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. Broken all manner of records. He is going to be so important for them. But they've got to get players around him that will complement him. Now, Wilson is one. I think Bobby DeCordova-Reed is a fine squad player at the Premier League level. Uh, I think Cabano is a fine player who could well have another level to go up. Now, he is 30, but he's been around. He's played in big games. Look, we'll put him down as a squad player. I think you put Ivan Carvalho in the exact same boat. I think they need to sign two attackers, one midfielder, two centre-backs, a keeper, and Nico Williams. seven, eight players. They've done it before. You can work the loan market. I think you've got to make some of them permanent deals, though. You've got to go and get yourself a permanent partner for Tosin. Make that happen at the very least. Spend a bit of money. Go and get someone good to play next to Tosin. Go and buy Joe Worrell from Forest. Coming out of the championship, the price won't be massive. He's absolutely good enough to play in the Premier League. But him next to Tosin, we've seen Tosin next to that type of centre-back before when he played next to Joachim Anderson. That partnership will work. You put 
pace either side of them in Anthony Robinson, Nico Williams. That's fine. That's the back four that can keep you in the division. Get your goalkeeper right. I mean, Sam Johnston is available on a free. Throw the money at him. His other options, yes, some of the bigger clubs are in for him. They only want him as a squad player. Go and throw good wages at him. Get him in. He'll be good enough to keep you in the division. You need that holding midfielder. It has to be somebody who's got who's got the experience of being in scraps, basically. You want someone that can come in and do you know what? I'd actually, if I was them, I'd go Joe Worrell on a permanent deal and maybe Ozan Quebec, another club for Quebec, but the, maybe you, you could get Quebec cheap this year on a permanent deal. Similar type of defender to Worrell could be a good backup for you to have. You could get him maybe for like 10, 12 million. Worrell will be 15. Get your keeper on a free. Nico Williams will be 10. That's 37 million. Maybe you need to exploit the loan market to get the midfielder you need. Just trying to think off the top of my head who could fit in that position for them and give them the type of ball winning that they need. See, you might actually want two in midfield. I do like Harrison Reed, though. He's not a bad player. I wonder. I mean, it depends on how ambitious they want to be and how aggressive they want to be. But if they could, some if they could get like say, James Garner on loan from United. Doesn't necessarily have to be a starter every game because I don't think he's quite ready for that. But him and Harrison Reed rotating, that could be decent. And then someone along the lines of Adrissa Gay, rumoured to be available from PSG. The wages would be big, but you could probably do a two-year contract so you wouldn't have a long-term commitment to him. El Neni on a free is not a bad shout from Guy. He might be happy to stay in London. If Spurs were willing to do business on Harry Winks, his intelligence might be exactly the type of thing you need. Now, he's not a big-time ball winner, but say you bring him in instead of Garner, say you do a loan with an obligation to buy if you stay up, Go and get gay on a sh- or gay on a short term or El Neni on a free. That could work. And then you're looking for wide forwards, and you're probably going to have to buy one and loan one. Maybe play Harry Wilson a bit a bit more central behind Mitrovic and get pace in the wide areas. I mean, could you go to the Forest Well twice for Brennan Johnson? Maybe, maybe not. Could you maybe approach Liverpool about a loan for Harvey Elliott or Curtis Jones as an attacking midfielder? 
play him centrally, Wilson from the right, then you just need to bring in one to play the other side. Ideally, you're looking for someone that's maybe out of favour somewhere looking for a move to kind of reignite their career, looking for... I mean, would, would Arsenal do Nicolas Pepe on loan? Maybe. You can only obviously do two. Is it two Premier League loans you can do? I think it's two. But there's definitely going to be players out there that they could look to bring in who could give them what they need. But they've got to do it quickly. They've got to do it quickly. They're, they're, as a club coming up, they're going to be in a situation where even if they've got a good starting 11, there's going to be positions in which if a player gets hurt, the guy coming in is a championship caliber player, and that's going to hurt them for certain games. Like if Anthony Robinson doesn't play and Joe Bryan is the left back who steps up, that's going to pinch a little bit. But there's definitely players out there that they can look to bring in. Like, I wonder, could they look at Joel Perot having a fantastic season with Swansea? Uh, he's got 20 goals in the championship in his first season there. Could they get him? Swansea paid $2 million. Would they pay? Would they take 8 to 10? And, I mean, at 22, he's a guy that's young enough to be a big part of your long-term future. He's a versatile forward, could be used in a number of different ways. I do wonder if maybe, maybe their best course of action is to work the, the championship market and try and find the best value there. Perot at 22 could well be the best value. Can play centrally, can play off the right or the left. If you had him on the right, Mitrovic to the middle, Wilson kind of as a withdrawn number 10 type, that's not bad for a start. Harrison Reed, maybe you look at, like we mentioned, uh, Idrissa Gay or, or Elneny, someone that has a bit of leadership, not championship players, but someone that has, has a bit of leadership to them. Um. You're getting that Israeli winger as well, Dave, just to remind you. They are getting that. Manor Solomon. Manor Solomon is coming in, is he not? Yes, Manor Solomon is coming in. So he will work. Manor Solomon can play off one wing, Joel Perot off the other. Uh, Wilson as a tennis type and Mitrovic up front. That's goals and creativity galore. That's a front four that will work. So sort the midfield, sort the I, I genuinely can't think of a better centre-back for them to sign than Joe Worrell. I think Joe Worrell will be absolutely fantastic. And again, the, the other one doesn't have to be Quebec. It could be Rob Dickey from QPR, who would just be a very good backup to those two. I mean, you still have Ream, you still have Hector, you still have whoever, Alfie Mawson, I don't know that you want to play him a whole lot, but you still have him there. Chalabic can slot in at centre-back if need be. 
you can work that championship market to your to your benefit this year. And what it means if you get those players in is that if you go down, they're not necessarily going to be pushing their way out the door. I mean, if you wanted a different type of winger instead of Joel Perot, Zorba Thomas from Huddersfield having a very good season, if they don't come up, would he be worth consideration? Could you look at Jed Wallace from Millwall? I know he's a bit older at 28, but he's a good player. John Swift is, as a midfielder. There's a lot of good championship players. Like Brennan Johnson, I think, will be special for them. You know, 15 goals, nine assists in the championship this year is not a bad return for a young kid. But I don't know if Forrest would do business on both. So you might have more luck just going for Worrell. But there's a lot of good players in the championship that you could you could look to bring in. Look how successful Brentford have been with it. Go and find the best players you can at good value. Don't be stupid. Don't overspend. Don't put yourself in a situation where next season you've got half a dozen players. Have they got anyone out on loan actually this season? Who's on loan this season? Zambo's on loan. Zambo's probably not coming back. If you could get him back, it'd be huge. But I don't think you're getting Zambo back. Uh, I don't know much about Jean-Pierre Thiel. He was in your academy for a few years as a young player. Um, don't know how he's done on loan. Uh, Stephen Sessnion, he's probably not quite Premier League calibre, unfortunately, unlike his brother. Uh, maybe Spurs would do business on his brother, though. You can get Ryan Sessnion back, even on loan. Play him left wing, give him a bunch of games. Play him right wing, let him cut, cut inside. Can be cover at left back as well. There's talent there, but they do need a lot. They do need a lot this summer. Um, and they're going to have to be smart and proactive about it. I didn't mention Rodrigo Munez. He's a decent player as well. I suppose he can he can be one for development. I think he's only like 19, 20. So, you know, there's, there's promise there, but they're going to need to start doing their business soon. Now that they know they're up, Start doing your business. Start getting stuff in line so that as soon as the transfer market opens, you can announce two or three players. Right, we'll move on to the last bit, which is just some news. Uh, Sean Dyche's successor at Burnley is still unknown. Caretaker manager Mike Jackson says he does not know who will be in charge of the club's relegation fight as a, on a permanent basis as he prepares the team to face Southampton on Thursday. Uh, I spoke to the chairman the other day. He just asked me, very similar to West Ham, to prepare for this game. Okay, so Burnley haven't made much progress, it would appear, which is a little bit concerning if you're a Burnley fan. Uh, you would have liked to have thought that such clever men to own a football club would at least have a plan when they sacked the manager. Um, Mikel Arteta has urged Alex Lacazette to focus on the Gunners after the player revealed he had open talks with a lot of clubs. I think Sevilla would be absolutely perfect for him. I really do. 
But Arteta has said that, you know, in the summer, Arsenal will be willing to talk about it. I think it will be too late. I do. It wouldn't surprise me if he already has an agreement with somebody to make a move in the summer. Uh, and I said months ago, this would be a concern for me if my two strikers, him and Enketia, are both out there fishing around for offers. Can I be sure they're going to be committed to my club for the rest of the season? Chelsea forward Romelu Lukaku needs to find that one spark to get back to his best days, says Thomas Tuchel. He started just two of the last 13 games in all competitions and has just five league goals for the season. He doesn't look fit to me. When he came on against Palace, I thought he looked heavy. He reminded me of United-era Lukaku rather than what Chelsea bought, which was the Inter-Kaku, who was a slimmed-down, far more terrifying version. Um, I thought he was a bad buy at the time. I, th- I think he's an excellent player. He's a far better player than we've seen this season. But they're better with Kai as the nine and goals around him. Like I think in, in Thomas Tuchel's ideal world, Kai is his nine, Mount is his ten, and he's got two pacey goal-scoring wide players playing a 4-2-3-1. I think in his fully realised version of, of this team, that's what he will want to do. James and Chilwellis, fullbacks, two new centre-backs, Mendy in goal, Kovacic plus a new holding midfielder. And then whether it's Pulisic and Werner or one of them plus a new signing or two new signings, I think that's what he would ideally like to do. Now, he may never get to do that. He may never get the time to do it. At least the one good thing for Tuchel, despite the fact that the money available to him will be drastically less moving forward than it would have been if Roman was sticking around, he'll likely have more job security because Roman went through managers like they were tissues. And you'd expect that new owners will realize we've got one of the best managers in the world. Let's make sure we keep him. Uh, I've said before I would be looking to move Rom on out the club. Uh, Even if it meant a change from what Tuchel had planned and maybe play Mount off the left and play Laturo just just off Kai um, or play 4-3-3 with Mount as an eight in the mid mounting Kovacic as your eight, put a holding midfielder in Laturo and whoever Laturo and Pulisic will be really nice. Just withdrawn, tucked in with Kai as the nine. That would be a lot of fun. That would be something I'd really enjoy seeing. Um, and so then all you need is two centre backs and that holding midfielder. Cause I think you can swap Lukaku for Arturo. And I spoke to an an Inter fan yesterday who is well-connected at the club, has worked for the club previously, uh, is a fairly well-known member of the media, and uh, at least in social media circles. And they said the same. They think they would do that job, that that swap. Inter would do that swap in a heartbeat. So, uh, you know, I think that works. Um, Anyway, let's move on. Lukaku needs to get a spark back. He does. He probably won't get it back at Chelsea. 
We'll do the gossip and we'll be done for today. Manchester City and England forward Raheem Sterling is on a list of players AC Milan want to sign amid reports of a potential £850 million takeover of 18-time Italian champions. We don't know who's buying them, do we? Because, you know, it would have to be someone ferociously rich if they're going to be buying players like Raheem Sterling, who's going to cost £60 million or so. Manchester City have told Dortmund and Erling, Erling Haaland that he could join... Sorry, I've told Dortmund and Norway striker Erling Haaland that he could join Real Madrid later in his career if he moves to the Etihad this summer. The signing on fee and agent commission on a potential deal could add 40 million. It'll add much more than that. The add-on is the the buyout is 63. The agent fee is going to be 30, because it's Mino. His dad wants 20, and he's going to want a year's salary. Or at least half a year's salary. So that's another 12, 13 million at least. It's going to be 60 plus million on top of the 60 plus million. You're looking at 120 odd million to sign him. And then his wages are going to be half a million a week. And Pep will still cry poor mouth. Real Madrid and Barcelona are both interested in signing Antonio Rudiger. Never has such mediocrity been chased by such greatness. Lazio, Juventus, and AC Milan could all be destinations for Jorginho, who is unlikely to be offered a contract extension. Lazio is the best fit for him because Sarri is there. Manchester United will have to qualify for the Champions League if they want to sign Christopher Nkunku. So United probably won't be signing Christopher Nkunku then. Uh, meanwhile, United have revived their interest in Pau Torres. This can't spell good things for Harry Maguire. Uh, former Red Devils boss Jose Mourinho is keen to bring Nemanja Matic. Jesus wept. He does love a very slow left-footed midfielder, does Jose. Um, Alan St. Maximum has kept open the possibility of leaving the club this summer. I don't think that's really what he said. I really don't think that's what he said. Tottenham are confident of keeping Harry Kane this summer and are considering a move to bring Christian Eriksen back to the club. They're also keeping tabs on Yuri Thielemans. Thielemans and Bentoncourt, I don't think, is a midfield pairing you want. I think Bentoncourt and Sar, the young midfielder they signed last summer, is what they ideally want. But you're probably a year from that being a midfield you could go with regularly. I think keep your powder dry. Sort those two centre-back positions you desperately need. Get yourself a good, a good goalkeeper who can be the successor to Lloris. Get another option at right wing back and get a backup for Kane. Um, I did see them linked to the two um, Torino defenders, Singo and Bremer. Those two with Romero, that's a nightmare waiting to happen. That's a far too aggressive back three. You, you can't go with that. No, I'm sorry. Uh, Newcastle are set to end their interest in Darwin Nunes um, because he turned them down. Arsenal and France defender William Saliba says there was a chance he could stay on loan at Marseille beyond the end of the season. If I was if I was Leicester, I would be approaching Arsenal with a Tielemans for Saliba swapsy. Because Saliba next to Fafana is Leicester's defensive foundation sorted for years to come. And Tielemans is what Arsenal need in midfield. Atletico Madrid are keen on signing, Thielemans, uh, signing uh, Saliba. 
understandably, he's an outstanding young defender. I don't understand what Arsenal's issue is with him. Uh, Eddie and Ketia wants regular first team football and has been linked with Leeds, Crystal Palace, and West Ham. He will get first team football at precisely none of them. Brighton have made an approach to sign Arsenal forward Kay and Edwards, who has scored 17 goals and provided six assists this season in the academy. He's also wanted by Chelsea. He's another fantastic young talent that Arsenal are going to find a way to mess up. Tottenham are keen on Nicolo Zaniolo. I, I, I doubt it. I think that's just because they've got Paratici and Conti and someone's put two, two and two together and gotten five. Bayern Munich are close to completing a deal for Nassar Mazzari. They do need a right back. Mazzari is a good right back. So on a free makes sense. Crystal Palace goalkeeper Vincente Gaeta wants to return to Valencia where he came through the academy before he retires from playing. Does he Is he happy to go back in a squad role? Because if that's the case, I'm sure Valencia would take him. He is a decent keeper, even still. Um, he was at Valencia from 06 to 2014, bar one year on loan with Recreativo. Left them, joined Tafe. Imagine he was 31 when he joined Palace, and he's still there, and he's still first choice, and he's still decent. And they got him on a free as well. They got him on a free in... They got him on a free in January. Oh, no, sorry. It was a pre-contract. Never mind. It was a pre-contract. Um, that was a good signing. That was a very good signing by Crystal Palace. Uh, if he's willing to go back to Valencia and just be a squad player, I could see that working for everybody. I really could see that being something that that Valencia would be uh, interested in. Jasper Sillison is their first choice and likely will remain first choice, I assume. but. You never know. Things might change. He hasn't had a great season. Former Norwich boss Daniel Farke has emerged as a contender to replace Sean Dyche. Slavin Bilic is also interested. Say no to Bilic. Daniel Farke, if you go down, Daniel Farke is a good choice. I don't know if he, what he can do if you stay up, though. Uh, that'll do. That is me for today, folks. I will see you tomorrow. Good luck and mind yourselves. Podcast Network.